Well, um, God, God works in mysterious ways. Does he not? And, and we've already seen and experienced and even some of these things that I've just been sharing about here and, and things that we've experienced even this week are testimony to that statement. It just is a statement that seems so true to us. Sometimes we say that. I don't know when you find yourself saying that statement. God works in mysterious ways. Sometimes it's when I'm just in absolute praise. Oh, Deborah's waving at me. Kids, you can be dismissed for Children's Church. <laughs> he works in mysterious ways to keep you from going to Children's Church. But now he is allowing you to go. He works in mysterious ways. Sometimes we say that in absolute praise. It's like, whoa, God, praise you. You work in mysterious ways, and I don't know how you pulled that off, but you did it, and just praise the Lord. Sometimes we say it when something happens that we just don't understand, and we don't see the end of that yet, but we are trusting that God is at work, and sometimes it's more of a, instead of a, God works in mysterious ways, it's a, God works in mysterious ways, and it's more of a question, and a waiting, and a hoping um, We've said it so many times over the years. We've heard it said so often among Christians. It just seems so right, and we're just sure it has to be in the Bible. God works in mysterious ways, but it's not. It's not. It's, it's not a Bible verse. Um, it's nowhere there. You can look around for it. Not now, but you can. It's not there. Um, it's, it's right up there with some of our other favorite um, sacred sayings, like God helps those who help themselves, and God won't give us anything more than we can handle that we like to think of as biblical, but they're really not. They're just, they're, they're important and they have biblical ideas, but they're not necessarily biblical. It doesn't mean that the statement isn't a biblical idea though, like I said. And there's some various passages that convey this notion that God works in mysterious ways. Look at some of these. I'll put these on the screen for you. One is from Isaiah 55. Read this with me. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here's another one from Romans 11, verses 34 and 35. Again, let's read it together. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? Jesus even said this to Peter in John 13 as he was getting ready to wash his feet and Peter was giving him a hard time. Do you remember that? And he said this. Let's read it together again. Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. God works in mysterious ways. And though that phrase is not scriptural, the idea seems to be. The actual phrase, God works in mysterious ways, actually it comes from a hymn that was written in 1774 by a guy named William Cowper. And uh, I mean, just think, if he knew in 1774 when he penned that line how, how significant it would become to God's people throughout the years. He was a, um, a, a pastor's kid, Cowper was, trained to be a, a lawyer, but at an early age he began to suffer from anxiety and depression until at one point in 1774, he was so lonely and depressed one evening that, that he lived in, in London and he called upon a taxi cab to come and take him to the River Thames because he was going to commit suicide. He was going to throw himself into the river and drown himself. Uh, the, the story goes that, that, that a dense fog descended upon London as 
happens, I think, with some regularity, but a dense fog descended upon London, and the taxi cab driver could not find his way, could not see a foot in front of the, the horse-drawn carriage, and, and could not find his way to the dock where Cowper had instructed him to drop him off. And we'll never know for sure if it was the, the, the driver trying to thwart Cowper's plans, or if it was the fog, or if it was something else. But after more than an hour of driving around, uh, Cowper said, just let me off of this carriage. And he got off. The taxi driver didn't charge him anything. And he discovered after a, a moment of getting his bearings that he was less than a block from his own home, that the driver had essentially driven around in a big loop and brought him back to his house. And so Cowper uh, attributed the, the driver's um, uh, driving to God's hand, that God had had his hand in the fog, and he never attempted suicide again. And just in a, a, a few weeks later, he penned these words, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Listen to this, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. <laughs> Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Beyond, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I don't think that hymn is in our hymnal either, so don't go looking for it right now. But you can find it perhaps later. God works in mysterious ways. Well, last week we began this series on, on Elijah from the book of 1 Kings. The super heroic, I, I wasn't even thinking about it, but right as I was calling Elijah the superhero, this studly prophet, my good friend Elijah was just sitting over here just thinking, yeah, you've got the right guy. You, you know what you're talking about there, Pastor James. Um, so, you know, this is, this is for you, man. But... Um, and again, this, and we talked about how these narratives from Elijah's life are not only historical narratives that inform us of God's activity and Elijah's activity, but these are what we called last week worship narratives that not only inform us, but that form us, that are to shape us as we read these stories of Elijah's life. They are to not only give us information, but they are to shape us in how we think about God and how we reflect his presence and his life in the world. And as we live for him, just as passages that we read earlier, like Isaiah 55 and Romans 11 and John 13, tell us that God's thoughts and ways are not like ours. The Elijah narratives show us that God's ways and thoughts are not like ours. The Elijah narratives show us that God is moving and working in ways that go beyond our comprehension and our understanding. All throughout these stories, we watch as God acts in ways that we don't expect, in ways that are surprising, in ways that are mysterious, that bring us to a deeper appreciation of just how good and powerful God is and to a deeper sense of, of awe and of worship and so we shouldn't just read these stories, and when we get ready to read this one, I hope you won't just read it and say, ah, that's a neat story, because they are neat on one level, but they're meant to do so much more 
in stirring our hearts. We saw it last week as God sent the ravens to provide for Elijah with bread and meat, and then he sent Elijah to Zarephath, and some of you remember this, and to be cared for by a widow and her son, and they're, they're never emptying containers of flour and oil. Do you remember that story? Again, we see God at work in mysterious ways today as we look at this opening scene from chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, 1 Kings chapter 18, especially if you have a New Living Translation. And I know that our 7th graders and our 8th graders received New Living Translations, and that's, friends, a large, significant reason why I read from the NLT, because this is the, the version that our teenagers are using and our children as well. And it's, it's good for them, it's good for us, but it's, it's, I want them to be able to read from their Bible. So if you have an NLT or whatever your scripture might be that you have with you, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's stand together as I read uh, verses 1 to 18. Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab, tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. Once when Jezebel, for those of you who weren't here last week, that's Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel, Uh, Not a very nice person, as you'll find out momentarily. Once when Jezebel had tried to kill all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden a hundred of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, We must check every spring and valley in the land to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. I'm not going to say any more about that, but... What can we say about King Ahab that in the midst of a severe drought, his greatest concern is for pasture for his horses and mules? Okay, we're getting the picture as to who this guy is as well. So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. As Obadiah was walking along, he suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my lord Elijah, he asked. Yes, It is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Oh, sir, Obadiah protested. What harm have I done to you that you're sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by the Lord your God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear to the truth of his claim. And now you say, go and tell your master, Elijah is here. But as soon as I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. When Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. Did I mention that? (laughs) Has no one told you, my Lord? Maybe you haven't heard this story about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets. I hid a hundred of them in two caves. And supplied them with food and water. And now you say, go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. But Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty, in whose presence I stand, that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. 
So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I see throughout this passage reminders to us that God's thoughts are nothing like our thoughts, that his ways are far beyond anything that we could imagine, as Isaiah the prophet wrote. There are several themes here that point us in that direction and lead us to be grateful that we worship a God like this. What would it be like to worship a God whose thoughts were just like ours, whose ways were no better than ours? We wouldn't worship him. It's what makes him worshipable. And so we celebrate that. The first thing we need to notice in this narrative is that Yahweh is a God who is always on the go. Yahweh is a God who is always on the go. Now remember, we talked about this a little bit last week, but Yahweh is the, the personal name for this God of the Bible, the Lord of Israel. In comparison with the foreign gods of the other nations like Baal and other foreign gods, idols, Yahweh is the name of the Lord of Israel. And the Lord who is who we know as God, the Father of Jesus, the, the Lord of all that is. This Yahweh is a God who is always on the go. Back in chapter 17, after Elijah had announced to King Ahab that there would be no rain or dew in the land, what did, Elijah, what did God tell Elijah to do? Go, go to the Kareth Brook. There I will take care of you. I will feed you. I will give you food to, from the ravens. I will give you water from the brook. After the book, brook dried up, what did the Lord tell Elijah to do in verse 9 of chapter 17? Go, go and live in the village of Zarephath. And there I'll, I'll provide for you again from this widow who will have an unending supply of flour and oil. And now after the drought has lasted into its third year, Undoubtedly, the people of Israel are beginning to suffer. The, the, the famine is severe. The, the, the drought is severe. What did the Lord Yahweh tell Elijah to do right there in chapter 18, verse 1? Who can tell me? What did he say? Go. It's right there. Later on in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. Go. Go, go, and wherever Elijah would go, we have to be sure we understand this, wherever Elijah would go, there too would go the presence of God. There too would go the word of the Lord. In Elijah was symbolized, and not only symbolized, but beautifully real, the presence of God. Wherever Elijah would go, wherever God would send him, the presence of God would go as well. Where Elijah would go, so would go the Lord. Now, we can sort of understand chapter 17, the, uh, Elijah's goings away from Ahab. There's, he's just announced a drought. He can imagine that Ahab's not going to be so happy with him. So, yeah, I, that makes sense. I will go away from him. And once the water is run out of the brook, then sure, that makes sense too. I will go on to another village where perhaps you'll provide for me there, God. That makes sense. 
It's this going back to Ahab here at the start of chapter 18 that is somewhat confusing, mysterious, we might say. What is going on here? Why now, after three years, would God send Elijah back to Ahab? We know that the drought had come as a result of Yahweh's judgment. Israel, remember this, had broken their covenant with Yahweh. They had bowed down to other gods. They had broken their relationship, their agreement with Yahweh. They had, they had done it in with their, with their worship of other gods. It was their repentance from this sin that was supposed to trigger God's forgiveness and mercy. And so the confusion lies then in this reasoning for Elijah and thus Yahweh's return to Israel and to Ahab at this time. To put it bluntly, why were they coming back now? Israel and her king, as we have read in this story, had clearly not repented of their sin. They had clearly not turned from their evil ways. In fact, what we learn in the passage is that not only had the king been hunting throughout every nation and throughout every kingdom to try and find Elijah so that he could eliminate this threat, but that the, the, the king's wife had been persecuting the Lord's prophets. She had tried to kill a hundred of the prophets in the land. And uh, to, just to make matters worse of all, that, that, that they were both persecuting and trying to bring to an end all of God's work in Israel. It's not a pretty scene. These are not indicators of, of repentance. These are signs of continued, full-scale rebellion. And yet, mysteriously, it is to this king and to this nation that Yahweh says to Elijah to go. It is toward these people and to this nation that to this point have shown no inclination to repent. Zip, zero, nada, no sense of turning. It is to this nation that Yahweh moves in mercy. It is to these unashamedly evil people that Yahweh extends the grace of his presence and his word. It's scandalous. It doesn't make sense. It's a grace that seems way overly generous, even irresponsible. It doesn't make any sense to us, but it appears to make all the sense in the world to God because his ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. Friends, this is a story that speaks to us of the prevenient grace of God. The grace of God that goes before, prevenient, coming before. The grace of God that moves towards God's creation before any of us can ever respond to Him. His unmerited and undeserved favor. It's one of the great mysteries of all of Scripture played out for us here in this story in vivid drama, in vivid detail, that Yahweh, hear this, doesn't wait for lost and broken people to come to him. Instead, he goes to them. Yahweh is a God who is always on the go. He doesn't wait for broken and lost people 
to somehow clean themselves up and meet him in the middle. I'll get halfway, you get halfway, and we'll meet there. No, Yahweh is a God who moves all the way towards his creation. In their sin and in the rebellion, people trying to find their way out, Yahweh goes to them and helps them. This story of Yahweh sending Elijah to King Ahab perhaps reminds us of another narrative that would come around a few hundred years later in which this same Yahweh would send his very own son to a world in full-scale rebellion. And John's gospel tells us that this word came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Yahweh is always on the go. And aren't you glad? This morning we sang, he's been so, 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 so good to me. And, and I know that was a new song for many of us, but as you began to pick it up, I could hear you singing it because it was true. You know it to be true. It wasn't just a catchy tune. It was a true statement that he has been so, so so, so good to me. Yahweh is always moving towards us. That means if you're a believer today, that his grace was at work in your life before you ever knew it. Before you were ever able to respond. You were so lost in your sin that you couldn't. All of us were. That's what scripture tells us. All of us were. But his grace was at work warming us and wooing us and leading us. Drawing us to himself. He was reaching to us before we ever knew it with his love and with his mercy. It means that if you're not yet a believer, he's extending that same love to you today, helping you to understand his forgiveness, speaking to you and helping you to think about what a life with him might be like. It means for all of those that we know and love who are yet apart from Christ, God has not forgotten them by any means. His grace is reaching. Yahweh is a God who is on the go. He's moving towards them in ways that we can't understand. It's a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. Even for the hardest of cases, God has not given up. I love to hear stories of how people have coincidentally come to faith. You know what I'm talking about? I just love that. I was down at the rescue mission this week for their 60 Minutes of the Mission. Many of you joined us. And, and Peter Achenbach gave his testimony. And again, as I just listened to his testimony, I thought, ah, hey, just got lucky. He didn't just get lucky. The grace of God was at work at every step and at every turn in his life. And we could all share a story. One of my favorites is of the lady who, who moved with her family to, to, to Arizona, and they decided to, to try out a church, and they visited. But, but after they visited, some folks from the church came to visit them, but they kind of shunned them, pushed them away. They decided they weren't ready to be a part of a church at that time, and and uh, later on, though, in the years to come, that same lady went through a, a hard divorce and decided it was time to maybe get back into a church. She had two daughters, and so she went back to a church. And this time, when they came to visit, she welcomed them, and she recommitted her life to Christ. And her two daughters saw her life in faith and wanted that same life in faith, so they gave their hearts to Christ as well, and they ended up going to Point Loma Nazarene University, and one of them happened to meet a guy who was preparing for ministry there at Point Loma, and they married, and they went to seminary, and then they just so happened to come and pastor a little church in Santa Barbara. It's just coincidence. 
that, that her kids then, our kids, would come to faith in Christ and that many others would be influenced and again, many would come to know Christ. It's just, you know, it just happens. No. God, Yahweh, is a God who is on the go. He knows your situation. He knows the people that you love. He knows the people that you care for. He knows the people that you don't care for. And even though those are the ones that he is reaching to with his love, he, he has stopped and will stop at nothing to reach to his creation with his love and with his grace, even so far as to send his one and only son. Well, that story is my favorite because it's personal, but it's no different than countless other stories of provenient grace. Stories of God working in mysterious ways. Stories of God on the go. The narrative goes on to show us how God's thoughts are so much better than ours when it comes to the kind of people that he can use for his purposes. And this is like the major part of the story. He works in mysterious ways in order to have the right people in the right place at the right time to accomplish his purposes. We, we could never set this up. We, we could never manipulate this. But God works in such a way as to just have it happen. And not just once, but time and time and time again. I can think back through my own life and think about the times and the places where God has put just the right person to accomplish his purpose in my life or in the church in such a way that I could have never anticipated, much less manipulated. The story reminds us that for God, and this is the second idea, faithful servants come in different shapes and sizes. Just after we're told that Elijah is on his way to appear before Ahab, we are introduced to this guy named Obadiah. And you can put up verse 3 there for me. It says this there in verse 3. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. And Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. And we learn two very important things about Obadiah from this one verse. That he was uh, the, 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 in charge of the palace. He was the overseer, sort of the mayor of the palace of Ahab. And at the same time, and we're trying to hold these in tension because we know Ahab is not a man of God, that that he was, while he was mayor for Ahab's palace, he was also a devoted follower of Yahweh. We learn that uh, he, was, uh, he held this high position, reminiscent to me of Joseph in Pharaoh's court, sort of this, this insider place, responsible for the palace. I, I love later, um, as he is describing his taking care of the prophets that Jezebel has tried to, to kill. And there are a hundred of them, so he puts 50 in one cave and 50 in another. It's like, I imagine this guy, Obadiah, as, as an effective administrator, an efficient manager, uh, responsible for Ahab's estates and livestock. I imagine him as a paper pusher with a pocket protector. This is... This is, if Elijah is a stud, Obadiah is kind of a nerd, and, and, and he's a businessman. He's a, he's a manager. He's a steward. He's taking care of the details. He was a trusted insider, though, which gives him this interesting opportunity to serve the Lord like no one else could. And he, he's in this unique position where he's able to work from his place to to accomplish God's purposes. A devoted follower of the Lord, likely at great risk to himself, he protects and provides for a hundred of the Lord's prophets when they're threatened 
by Jezebel. It's interesting because throughout the story, as Elijah invites him to announce Elijah to Ahab, Obadiah's faith uh, appears to, to wane. His fear appears to grow as the story goes on. For at least a while, he seems much more concerned about protecting himself. Did you catch that? Uh, then, and, and maybe living off of his past accomplishments than he does about simply being faithful. I just love that part where he like, reminds Elijah, you do know what I've already done, right? Okay, you still want me to do this? Okay, all right. In the end, though, he comes through for Elijah and announces his arrival to Ahab. And what his presence in the story shows to us is that not only is there room for all of us in the plans and purposes of God, but there is a need for all of us. Elijah and Obadiah are both faithful servants of Yahweh. It's not a question. Elijah's name means the Lord is God. Obadiah's name literally means faithful servant. They're both faithful servants of Yahweh. But let's face it, on the outside, they couldn't be much more different. One confronted from the outside, the other conspired from the inside. One uses forceful eloquence, the other uses his persuasive influence. One has long hair and calloused hands, the other is neatly trimmed from head to toe. One had to fight against isolation and fend off discouragement. The other had to battle absorption or assimilation and beware of danger all around him. As much as I love Elijah, and I do, he's still a stud, don't, don't worry. As much as I love Elijah, Obadiah is a quick reminder to us all that not every faithful believer can be or is even called to be an Elijah. Not everyone is called to this blockbuster faith, the heroic adventure. Some are called to have a prophetic voice. Others are called to live a faithful life in the midst of a faithless context. For every preacher or missionary, there are a hundred or more school teachers and businessmen and government employees working hard to be excellent at your craft and then to somehow leverage that for the glory of God. This is what Obadiah teaches us to do. I, as we come to VBS, I'm again reminded of Krista Beard, and many of you know Krista and have gotten to know Krista, but Krista is a school teacher, used to teach at our kids' school at El Camino. But really, that's just, kind of her cover. I mean, she, she, she's a teacher and a great one, without a doubt. But she got into teaching because she wanted to work with, with kids, and particular kids who were at some risk. And so Krista, soon after beginning to teach at a public school, began to open her home to a homework club where she assigned students to mentors who would share their life with them, who would share their faith with them. And for years now, five years probably, Krista has been bringing many of those students to our vacation Bible school. And now those students have become a part of our youth group and help lead us in worship and do the media back there. Hi, Rebecca. And Aaliyah goes to NYC. And these students have become a part of the family of God. And, and it's because... 
Krista was willing to be a faithful person in the midst of a faithless context to do her work well, to use her abilities to her very best, and then to mysteriously, as only God can make it happen, leverage that for the glory of God. The question for us today is, who has God made you to be? What skills and abilities has he given you? And and where now has God placed you? In your work, perhaps? In your neighborhood? In your relationships? What influence has he given you? The Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians that whatever they do or say, they're to do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. God worked in mysterious ways through Obadiah and Elijah to bring them together to accomplish more than they could have ever accomplished on their own. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He knows that faithful servants come in different shapes and sizes and that all of them are of great value to the kingdom of God. Here's the last idea. Narrative reminds us that when things look bad for God's people, when the chips are down and evil seems to be winning. Don't give up hope. The story shows us that even when the odds seemed to be stacked against God's people, that God does not always see these situations the way that we do. And he's still at work in mysterious ways. We're reminded in this narrative that even when defeat seems sure, when it looks like the enemy has us right where he wants us, that you, that you have to watch out for the underdog. And I just want us to hold on to that phrase. You have to watch out for the underdog. The underdog is that team that nobody expects to win. The underdog is that unseated player making a run at the champion on center court at Wimbledon. The underdog is that guy going up against the guy who has won the Coney Island hot dog eating contest for eight years in a row. Has no chance. He won, by the way. The, the underdog did. I saw that last night. The underdog is maybe the one that people like to root for, but he's still the one that people bet against. It's like it feels good to cheer for the underdog, but at the end of the day, my money's going on the favorite, not on the underdog. When Elijah finally comes face to face with Ahab after being on the run for three years, it feels almost to me like a showdown from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Did anybody else feel that way? Did anybody else hear the... the it was just... Here is, you know, Ahab, and here comes Elijah... It's like, hmm. And you can hear the whistle. I mean, you can hear it going. It's like the showdown right here at the OK Corral, the Jump Cowboy movies. Um, On one side is King Ahab. He's confident. He's not confident. He's smug. He's well-armed. He's big. Nobody else has been eating any food or drinking any water, but he has been. He's got his entourage around him, surrounded by confidence. On the other side is Elijah. Elijah is unarmed. He's thin. 
He's wrapped in animal clothing. He's alone. On one side, the representative of institutional and political power, the king who had led the people away from Yahweh, he thought that much of himself. And on the other, the representative of spiritual power, the humble, spirit-filled prophets. And if you were just dropping in on the scene from outer space, it would be very clear who the favorite was and who the underdog was in this scene. The lonely skinny guy doesn't have a chance. The king holds all the power. Even in his words, we can look at them, I think, from those uh, verses. Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. It would seem that Ahab would have some appreciation for what Elijah had done and what Yahweh had done. He had just brought a drought and a famine on their land for three years. You would think at this point, Ahab would finally be saying, yeah, i got to give it up, Elijah. You were right. Three years. Anything I can do to turn that around? I mean, you would think. But Ahab is digging in his heels. And not only is he digging in his heels, but now he's he, and not acknowledging what God has done, but he's casting all the blame on Elijah. Is it really you, you troublemaker? And, and the Hebrew is so much stronger. It really means, is it, is it really you, you hex? You one who has brought a spiritual curse on Israel? And this is the way that Ahab is speaking to Elijah. It doesn't look good. But Elijah refuses to hear the accusation. He doesn't say, yeah, well, you're right. It was kind of me. It was kind of you, but I did announce it, so you're right. I'll, I'll share some of the blame. No, Elijah will have none of it. He may be the underdog, but he knows who is with him. It's not me who's the troublemaker. It's not me who's the hex. I didn't bring a curse. In fact, Ahab, it's And this one with seemingly no power suddenly is thrust into a position of power. The narrative communicates a prevailing theme throughout Scripture, really. And it simply is this, that God time and time again is on the side of the underdog. God loves the underdog throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Though the world may lean toward the powerful and the strong, the sure bets, Yahweh has a special place in his heart for the underdog. And so the question for us this morning is, where do you feel like the odds are stacking up against you? I look at some of you, and it's a health concern today. This feels like you just keep running up against a brick wall. For some of you, it's a financial pressure or concern. For some of you, it's just a personal spiritual battle that you just can't seem to get over, and you just feel like that the weight of the world is against you, that every force and power in this world has been riled up to battle against you you feel like the underdog where do you feel beat up where do you feel broken down where do you feel accused who's been calling you names where do you feel up against it where do we as a church maybe feel like the underdog we feel like 
Everybody just is, you know, everything is so much more spectacular in the world. The world gets, has all the fun. The church is just this little kind of struggling entity over here. Maybe we feel like the underdog sometimes that we can't get over the top in this life. Perhaps the greatest example of this was Jesus called a troublemaker himself. One who was able to stir up a little trouble. If Elijah was accused and alone, how much more so was Jesus? This underdog who went to the cross for us. The promise is, and as we'll see next week for Elijah, the promise is that God raised up that underdog from the grave. And God stands by the underdog. He stands with us today, ready to raise us up as well in the face of great odds. And so today we come to the table and we're invited to take of the bread and to eat of it. Just as Jesus passed it to his disciples on that night he was betrayed, he passes it to us. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And as he shares that with us and serves that to us in a very beautiful way, he's offering himself to us. You want to talk about God moving in mysterious ways. We're about to enter into it, friends, as we think about how God offers himself to us through his body. And in the same way, the cup, the symbol of his blood that was shed for us, he says, through this cup, you can have forgiveness. You can have new life. So drink of it. And as you do, remember me. And so we're invited as underdogs ourselves to know this one who has given all of himself, standing by us, standing with us, helping us to face whatever challenge it is that you're facing today. Alex, this is for you. Ryan and Miranda, this is for you. Pilar, this is for you and for your family. This is for all of us in different places. Gene, this is for you. For all of us facing this, this, uh, this world that can be so hard. This one who has given it all stands with us now, ready to feed us and nurture us and support us. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much. I'll invite our worship team just to come right down here and I'll serve you first. Thank you so much for your faithfulness, oh God. Thank you that you, that you, again, in these narratives have shown us the reality that your ways are not like ours. So much higher, so much better. Your thoughts are so much greater than ours. Oh, God. Thank you that you're a, that you're a God who's on the go. Thank you that you reached to us, that you're reaching to many here today, that you're reaching to those who are still walking away from you. Oh God, thank you, Father, that you, you have the, the uncanny knack to put the right people in the right place and for us to recognize where it is that you've placed us and to commit ourselves to leveraging that talent and that situation for your glory and for your honor. Thank you. 
Father, that you stand with the underdog. Father, that in Jesus you were the underdog. You know where it is that we stand. You know where it is that Elijah stood. And now we can have the confidence that you stand with us. So as we receive the bread, the symbol of Christ's body broken for us, and as we dip it into the cup, the symbol of Christ's blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, may we do so with joyful and with grateful hearts. For truly you work, God, in mysterious ways. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.